Biathlon is a unique Olympic event. It challenges participants with opposing athletic endeavors in a singular competition. It combines the heart-pumping aerobic aspects of cross-country skiing matched with the intense focus of precision marksmanship. Two diametrically opposing forces testing every ounce of physical and mental strength. Welcome to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. With each episode, Heartbeat brings you insights into this fascinating sport. The Olympic Winter Games in Beijing are nearly here. Athletes are preparing to fly to China to compete on a biathlon course virtually none of them have ever seen. Today on Heartbeat, we're going to meet someone who is well-known to biathlon fans, Chad Samla. He's coming to us live from the finish area at Antholtz, where he's on a two-week blitz with NBC covering the IBU World Cup biathlon in Germany and Italy. Chad grew up on Minnesota's Iron Range, proudly carrying on a fourth-generation Finnish heritage, and those roots are a huge part of Chad Samla's story. Chad will talk through his experience as an athlete, a board member, a coach, and a broadcaster. We'll even chat about his famous call of Jesse Diggins's gold medal run with Keegan Randall in Pyeongchang. But most of all, Chad will help us better understand who to watch and what to expect as Beijing takes the world's center stage beginning February 4th. Chad Samla continues to play a vital role in telling the story of biathlon in America. Let's go now to Antholtz for a wonderful conversation with NBC commentator Chad Samala on Heartbeat. Heartbeat fans, we have a real treat today. We are going to take you live inside the venue at Antholtz, Italy, as the Biathlon World Cup prepares for the upcoming competition with us, the iconic legend, Chad Somlon. Chad, thank you for joining us here today on Heartbeat. Thanks. I think it's a little over-the-top introduction, but I'll take it. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, of course you will. Of course you will. Now, uh, this is being recorded, by the way, between the World Cups in Rupolding and Antholtz. It'll air a little bit after Antholtz. But Chad, what has the vibe been like? You've been over there for a week now. Uh, you were in Rupolding for the events last weekend, the Olympics are coming up in less than two weeks now. What's the vibe on the tour as we get ready for the biggest event in the sport? Well, it's certainly different. I, you know, I think the last time I was over at a world, at least in Antols, was 2007 for the World Championships. I called them uh, for cable here, called, called them on TV. But, um, you know, I think with no fans, biathlon is just a completely different thing because the fans and the, and the kind of rabid fandom across Europe uh, and popularity of it is kind of what made it kind of set the sport apart. And you take that away and, and, and it, it loses a lot of, some, it loses a lot of something. Um, but at the same time, for me, it's really exciting after calling these sports primarily off of screens forever to get two weekends with, uh, in front of the athletes and to rub shoulders with people. It's for me, the vibe is cool, but I don't know that anybody else thinks the vibe is that cool, but it, there's definitely, the vibe is definitely taking a hit. We'll put it that way. Well, I hear you, and I know that for fans who may not realize this, uh, most of what NBC calls right now is called from its headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut. And now, Chad, uh, uh, Stamford has become a little bit of a home away from home for you, so I imagine it is nice to be back out on the tour and back in Europe and actually seeing the athletes face-to-face. Yeah, you know, and actually since COVID, I really haven't been back to Stamford. It's been almost, we're coming up on two years since I was last in Stamford. I was in Stamford in uh, in, right when they shut down the, like the night they shut down the NBA, 
I had uh, I was calling a biathlon race the next day in Contiolati, and we called the race. Went home, went home to my hotel, took a nap, and got a call and said I was and I and I was being sent home the next day. So this coming March will be two years since I've been to Stanford, but I'm I'm going to be there again uh, in a couple of weeks for the Olympics. But uh, for the most part, anything I've been doing. Uh, for for NBC or anybody has been remote, even even remote from Stanford, like with with a kit in my in a, either at my home or or uh, or at a place that I've rented. Uh, it's crazy how that works today, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But let's get a little background. I think a lot of us who are fans of the sport, fans of cross country and biathlon, uh, know you from your work on on NBC, and we appreciate all the commentary that you've provided. But uh, let's go back in time and 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 talk about your youth growing up in the Iron Range of Minnesota and how you found sport and how you got into cross country and biathlon. Well, yeah, my so. I was kind of a, I was a chubby kid. Like, you know, I was, I didn't really, I mean, endurance sport was not on my radar. I liked BMX bikes and jumping my bike off of, off of tailings piles in the, in, on the mining roads in, in, in near my home. And, uh, and then my, you know, my dad did the Berkey. I remember my dad skied, I think it was the second Berkey. It was probably, and I was probably four years old, which I think lines up, um, and, and one of my earliest memories is of my dad skiing the Berkey. And I remember there was a brand of aluminum ski poles. You probably know what they are, Tom. But they had orange baskets on it, like bright orange baskets. And and, uh, and and as a kid, I was just fascinated. And I remember my dad skiing past a dark log building across either a finish line or starting line with a banner. And I remember the orange baskets. And those are some of my earliest skiing memories. And from there, you know, I, I just um, – in 1985, my dad was an my dad's an architect, still is, was then, and still is, and he got hired to to design the chalet and the training center at Giants Ridge when the Iron Range Rehabilitation Resources Board, um, a, a a government organization that that uh, uses tax money from the iron iron ore um, production to to set up the, the area, the region for uh, post-mining um, recovery. They actually invested in, a, in an old defunct alpine ski hill called Giants Ridge. And they built a great, as you know, a really great Nordic facility. And that was when I was, I think they built it when I was 12 or started talking about building it when I was 12. And I remember, I think it opened when I was 13 or 14. And that's how I got into ski racing. My dad was, we were already, we kind of skied as a family, but I didn't really like it. And then, and then we, you know, we, we had Giants Ridge was built 20 miles from our home and we started going there regularly. And, you know, prior to Giants Ridge, we'd gone to Telemark a couple times as a family. And that, that was kind of my my first experience with like groomed skiing and fiberglass skis and, 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 and it kind of just took off from there. Um, a good mutual friend of ours, Peter Graves was the first uh, director of that, of that uh, venue. And uh, he got, he kind of helped my older brother, Corey, who was three years older than me. He kind of helped us find our way into ski racing with USSA. Our high school didn't have a high school team, but we started racing USSA races. And, and I did quite well from the, from the beginning. So, you know, Giants Ridge kind of like got me involved with ski sports, so to speak. Chad, how did you eventually make that move into biathlon? So, yeah, I mean, I was, uh, so as a, as a junior two, I was one of the top, I think I was one of the top um, Midwestern kids as a junior two, which is now U16. And then my first year, I, you know, I was trying to learn how to train. I had no coaching. I was reading books. I was talking to Afo Taipala in, in, um, in, in Minneapolis, but I didn't really have a coach. And I just didn't really know what I was doing. And I, you know, I heard a lot about long, slow training and, and my, my first year as a U18, which is was a junior one, I didn't make the junior 
I, I got sick middle of the season, and I probably thought I should have made that team. I think they took seven deep, but there were some really good guys, like Luke Bodensteiner was in that team, and a bunch of guys who got D1 scholarships were, were in that same age group were a year older than me. So looking back, it really wasn't that big of a shame that I didn't make that junior juniors team. But um, the, the, that year, I didn't make that team. I, I was sick at the most important race, and then I got better. And in March, the U.S. Biathlon uh, Nationals came to Giants Ridge, and, um, I, you know, I was, I was, re- I was feeling better. I, I wanted to race some more because I didn't, you know, my racing kind of ended mid February, late February. And, you know, three weeks later in March, I was kind of feeling pretty good. And I, and I borrowed a rifle from a guy I'd met that winter. He, uh, his name was Jim Frazier and Jim and Dave Spidell, who were both Middlebury graduates where ironically it was where I ended up going to school later, but they were living at the Giants Ridge Training Center for most of that winter. And Jim had a, had a rifle, and the juniors didn't race when the seniors did. So Jim uh, – a lot, and then and somebody found another rifle for my brother, Corey, and we both did junior nationals that year. And and uh, I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I was doing. But um, in one of the three races, it was a sprint, and I think I hit four out of ten, and I skied pretty well and got fourth out of like – I don't know, there were maybe 20 kids in the race. And and that kind of got you know the, the coaches and the biathlon team kind of talking to me and – I still wasn't really, really necessarily going to commit to biathlon. I just, you know, I, I, I had a pretty good ski race and hit a few targets. Uh, but then what happened is over the course of that next year, that was, I think that was 88, spring of 88. And then 80, 88, 89 season, I was still like uh, 16, 16 going on 17. And um, we wanted to go, my brother and I and a couple of friends from the Iron Range who ski raced wanted to go to West Yellowstone and do a training camp. And I didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> I, uh, so, um, and at the time, Dennis Donahue was the national team coach and he offered me like, it was like maybe 350 bucks, which felt like a lot, uh, to offset my cost to come to West Yellowstone if I did the biathlon camp with them. And so that's kind of what I did. I, I should, I should say we bought that rifle from Jim Frazier. So my brother and I were sharing that rifle. And because I got invited to that camp, I kind of got the rifle for, for that week of West Yellowstone, and uh, I shot maybe a few times over the summer, but I really wasn't that into it. And at that time, they brought in Walter Pickler, who was a bronze medalist for West Germany, and they brought him in for that camp, and I didn't know that they were kind of thinking they might they might hire him as a coach. But Walter and I got along famously really really well. He really liked the way – he liked my attitude. He liked the way I skied and, and my desire, and – he basically, uh, they basically named me, you know, I was on the junior national team. I made the junior national team that next year uh, based off the races that I'd done. And, um, and, and the rest is kind of history. Walter invited me the next year to uh, train with the seniors, which, um, you know, was a great opportunity. It was probably the only opportunity I had to really advance. And, and you know, I looked at my pathway in cross-country skiing and I was, you know, I was, I was an all right national level uh, junior, but I definitely wasn't one of the standouts. I mean, there were guys that were faster than me, like Pete Vordenberg and uh, same age as me. And, and, you know, I probably would have struggled to get any, any attention or any support in cross country at that time. And here, here the U S biathlon association was giving me 350 bucks to go to, to take part in biathlon in West Yellowstone. And then from there, it just kind of slowly developed. And by the next I think by the next summer they sent the national team centralized in Lake Placid and I was invited and I was like, I was all in at that point. I bought a Fortner action rifle and, um, and that was it. I I was in. Chad, that's really a fun story. I mean, you were one of the sports, maybe first scholarship athletes, but going back to that time check, what were some of those elements that really brought excitement to you as an athlete when you picked up shooting and you, now had that really amazing additional component to cross-country skiing. 
I think more than anything, like what got me in, I was more interested in the opportunity. Like I could see that opportunities were, were, were rare in the United States in general. Like, you know, you had to be a pretty, pretty studly athlete to get any kind of support. And I felt like, I think my whole career, I was kind of on the border of that definition of an athlete. I was never, I was a good athlete. I was never a great athlete. I had a lot of desire. And at that age, I thought the the world was my oyster. And I would, I would just simply believe myself to the top of, of, of whatever sport I did. Um, of course, you know, some reality hit in certain spots in my career, but the fact was, is that, um, once I started trying to do biathlon, once I started training for it, it really was compelling and it made uh, training so much more interesting. And by, you know, by my third year of doing biathlon, I couldn't, I, I don't think I could have considered going back to cross country. I think if, you know, looking back on it, if, if sprinting had become a thing by the time I was developing, if it had become a real legitimate part of the sport of cross country skiing, I might have wanted to look you know, take another look at maybe switching from back from biathlon to cross country, because I think that's probably where I would have been at my best physical talent. I was very powerful and I could do power in short doses, but, um, but I like to, I, I, again, I don't know that I would have liked to go back to be a cross country skier. I think the biathlon, the cerebral nature of it and the challenge, the perpetual challenge of, of marrying the two probably was what kept me in it. But again, I, I, I really didn't have a very long career when all is said and done. So, you know, it's all it's all relative. <laughs> but Chad, you did spend a good amount of time on the national team. You toured the world. What are your memories as you think back to that time in the 90s when you were on the U.S. biathlon team? Well, I had a lot of frustration early on. I mean, I think that um, I, I think I overtrained that first year and, and I think I, I paid for it for a few years. And, and then, you know, I, I'm sitting here in Antwerp looking out at the shooting range talking to you. And this is where I ra- raced my first biathlon race. And I remember being out on the on the shooting mat zeroing. And Sven Fischer from Germany laid down next to me. They were zeroing next to us, as luck would have it. And that was it was an intimidating but really cool feeling to like feel like after all those years of dreaming of being here at 24, I was I was laying down shooting, zeroing my rifle for a, for a World Cup race. And, you know, I, honestly, I... I had a pretty short stint on the, you know, I, I raced partial parts of the world cup season for about three seasons. I raced some world university games and some, some, some smaller international competitions. But I think the number one thing is the, the friendships you take away in a team environment. I think that I think about like my, my, so, some of my best friends I made at that time, Kurt Schreiner, who was a three-time Olympian and, and he was, he was, he was five years older than me. And so was Dave Jarecki, another guy from Vermont, who was really, we were really close friends. And even though we haven't really remained close in the, in that time, I think those, those years of living and training together really um, taught me a lot about relationships, about what, um, about relying on people, you know, friends and teammates um, relying on each other. And it, it, not many people get to do something like that in their lives. And, and that hasn't, that hasn't, that I haven't. That hasn't been lost on me. I think that um, I think there's just so many great things about being an athlete, both I- internally, at looking into your own soul, and uh, and the relationships and the people you you take that journey with. They're really special. Well, it's really well put, Chad. And having spent my life watching and working with athletes in an individual sport, but also sports that come together as a team. That camaraderie, that friendship that you develop, it really is life lasting. It is. And I, and I think the hardest, I think for us, there was sort of a solidarity in the fact that we were getting our butts handed to us week in and week out on the World Cup. And you kind of need somebody to, 
you kind of need somebody to have humor with and, and look at things on the bright side. But, you know, we had our moments. Everybody had their moments of personal success. I mean, Kurt had some great races. Dave had some great races. I even had some decent races. Um, they were few and far between. But, you know, I think, I think that it, I'm looking at the U.S. biathlon apparatus now compared to the apparatus that I had access to as an athlete. And it's, it's just not even different. And it's night and day. And I think that's even, it's even night and day better today relative to the top of the sport at, at both times. I think that uh, Max Cobb has done, an, an, and a lot of people over the course of the year, but Max has done, had a nice, done a nice job of guiding this organization and, its, and this board of directors to a pretty professional level that, uh, that I, I don't think, you know, I don't think I don't think we experienced quite the same level of support and, and professionalism in my day. And that's not that's not throwing anybody under the bus. It's just that I quit at 28 or 26 because I think I just didn't see the future the way I needed to. And, and I think I think to, I think a, a guy like Sean Doherty or Paul Schomer at Ocean College, it's a different story for them. I mean, I think that, they, you know, Paul's Paul's time on the team is almost doubly as, or as it's as long as mine or more now and he's still kind of considered young at the sport so i think I, when i juxtapose my experience with paul's experience i think the sport has come a long way and i think that it that it, it, it's done that for multiple reasons um but having great people is a big part of it it is interesting to look at us biathlon today and i agree with the things that you said the assessment of the program the work that max has done and really helping to provide a platform for these athletes but chad you too played a role in that and you either made a choice yourself or maybe others made a choice for you uh, but when you retired from the team you wanted to stay involved you got involved as an athlete rep and then you got involved in the olympics in 2002 and here you are today yeah i mean i i think i think some of my proudest moments in biathlon have nothing to do with having my skis on or my rifle on my back i think that um I was a I was a semi talented athlete who probably didn't give the sport enough time to really see what I could do, but I I saw enough to know where I was and how much further I could go, and I stepped back and and I I consciously made that decision to kind of get out of the way of Jeremy Tila and Jay Hackenden, and, and and also to give back and be an athlete rep. And and the I think I think back of my time as an athlete rep um, for the sport of biathlon, and it's probably given me some of the most um some of my best opportunities in sport in general and also uh given me the opportunity to give something back to these sports in in ways that i haven't in, in other avenues let's go back specifically to that time in 2002 when you were a stadium announcer at the olympics at soldier hollow and you worked the venue itself what significance did those games have in the evolution of the sport here in america i you know i think that i i think that actually um that felt to me like when the world came to when the biathlon world came to the Olympics in Salt Lake City. I think it changed a lot of us um, in the way that we saw a pro the program needed to be to, to to go into the future. And I think that evolution happened for the organization between the years of 2002 and the 2006 Olympics. And and, and there was some growth. There were some growing pains that I think had to go on in the organization to actually push through to a new era. And, uh, and, and I think that, 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 that was just an inevitable thing. We were either going to sink as an organization or we were going to swim. And I think we chose to swim. And, and it, that had to do with the work of numerous people. Um, a couple of key things in, in laying out the, the board of directors at that time, in two, right after the 2006 Olympics in, in Torino. And I think, you know, some of our greatest successes and our modernism came in that era. And, and 
I, I'm really proud of that, that the organization um, got through that era, which was very challenging. Let's let's fast forward now to uh, your role as a coach, and you coach for a number of years. You actually still coach uh, track and field at St. Scholastica College in, in Duluth. Uh, but that time you spent as a cross-country coach at St. Scholastica was also a pivotal period for you in recruiting new athletes into biathlon. Uh, talk about that period of your life and, and, and how you felt in coaching those athletes and, and bringing them into a new sport. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I got a ton of, I, I, you know, two athletes stand up, Kelsey Dickinson and Paul Schomer. And honestly, I think that they probably came to St. Scholastica maybe for more, more reasons than, than because I was an ex, uh, an ex biathlete. I think, I mean, Kelsey had an eye on doing biathlon. Paul had it in the back of his mind when he came and they both happened to be very suited to him, but I wasn't really trying to re- necessarily read. I, I was trying to recruit people to the, to the program who could make the program more competitive plain and simple. But I also recognized that it was a division three program. We had no scholarships and that we also had to like, we had, we had to big, bring in numbers and create, create a somewhat of a culture, and, but a culture based off of, I wanted even though we wouldn't have scholarships, I wanted a culture based off of high performance and, and athletes wanting to reach, reach high levels. And it just so happened that Paul and Kelsey came through the program. And, and I, I've got to say, Tom, I didn't do a lot of biathlon stuff with either of them. I, you know, I may have gone to the range with Paul five times, maybe Kelsey more like 10 in the entire time they were there. Um, but, but we always seem to have pretty good moments. Like, like, like the, the times that I would go with them to the range, it seems like we would make some, some progress, but you know, when you're in college and trying to do biathlon on, around a, a ski program and a coach that's hired to, to, to create a ski program, it's not, I wouldn't call that an optimal situation. I think that, these athletes have emerged to where they have almost in spite of the situation I had at St. Scholastica, not because of it. So, um, you know, while I'm really proud, I do think that if you look at what Paul and and Kelsey have done is I gave, I gave them some snippets and some nudges and they did all the rest. And, and, and so, so in that respect, I'm really proud of them both. They they both reached a very high level biathlon. Well, they, they both speak fondly of that time, and they both speak about you. So you were at least a guidepost for them. I know that. Cool. So let, let's let's move on to your uh, career as a broadcaster. Uh, you will be heading to the Olympics again, your sixth Olympics, uh, and I think your fifth with NBC. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So, so you have clearly brought sport to a higher level for us uh, who watch his fans, both cross-country and biathlon. And I know we're on a biathlon podcast, but I really have to start out with that call of Jesse Diggins coming to the finish line in Pyeongchang. You have become an iconic figure. People know you around the world. And I imagine when you run into people and they learn who you are, uh, do they ask you to give the Diggins call again? <laughs> yeah, some people do, but like you know, I, I can't. I can't do that. I mean, it's like it, it's happened a few times, but I think the the thing about it is that um, that's a very unique situation. In fact, I, you know, I think there. If you think of all the ways the United States could have possibly won their first Olympic gold medal, first women's Olympic medal, and first gold medal, um, it was actually kind of lucky that it happened the way it did. I mean, if Jesse had won a bronze in the ten kilometer, which would have been great the gold medal call for the team sprint would have been completely a different context. 
the I, I've said this several times. I, you could, one could live two lifetimes and never have the opportunity to call a race that was set up just the way that race was. So any, I feel like anything to try to any any effort to try to mimic that or copy that is sort of futile because it's just not going to be genuine. No, I to- I totally get that, but I it it's just something that for those of us uh, who have followed the sport for so long to to see that and be a part of that moment and your call just really crystallized it for us. So, let's let's look at the biathlon coverage that we can anticipate uh, from NBC. You're going to be calling the action from Stamford, Connecticut, but what's the broadcast plan right now and how can biathlon fans follow the sport on NBC and Peacock coming up this February? You know, I'm not privy to the actual scheduling of all that. Like, they'll it'll come out. Um, and the other thing is that the Olympics actually uh, are, are fairly fluid. Things, you know, they they have plans to do things, but depends on depending on what happens, things get shifted. For example, the the Diggins race got shifted. Um, it was only supposed to run, air once that day, but because they won the gold, it aired twice, and it aired on prime time. So, uh, you know, all all those things will still be determined as to when they'll actually air on the network. And, and, and honestly, we don't really know. I mean, I, I sit down and I talk. They, they tell me when to show up, which is usually live. We call the races live, whether they're going live anywhere or not, we call them live. And then if we need to edit anything, we'll go to a studio and do that. And I hate doing that. It's, it's the longest, most tedious process of this, of this job. And the fact that I'm doing both biathlon and cross country and the Nordic combined cross country portion, I've got way too many events to like go and spend a lot of time in the, in the studio fixing stuff. And, and I think our two teams, the cross country production team and the biathlon production team, they have that. They know that we are we're not going to get bogged down revoicing stuff, so we got to get it right the first time because Chad isn't going to have the time to go between sports and, and and just spend a lot of time in a studio. So, you know, in, in Pyeongchang, um, we we did that, we did everything live, and, and I had a couple of small voiceover things, but but did very little. I'm hoping for the same, but for viewers, best bet is to check daily on on the website there are going to be a lot of cross-referencing so I, i've seen some of the stuff in the seminars i've been in there will be cross-referencing for example there'll be a split a four four-way split screen saying on peacock this is on right now on usa network this is on right now on csnbc msnbc or cnbc this is on right now and on nbc this is airing so there will be sort of direct traffic directions for viewers um but I think more than anything, just look online, look at the look at the TV schedules. Um, I've been told that we will have a lot of biathlon that will air uh, on the network, um, probably not live on the network. Um, usually things that are on NBC proper aren't live unless they're absolutely massive to the American uh, storyline. So, you know, Michaela Schifrin ski run might get in there or, Je- you know, Jesse Diggins doing you know in the in this in the skate sprint might get get some time but even that i think is a stretch but you know like prime time figure skating you can you can count on that to be on, on prime on the on the main network so but I, I think i think you can expect to see us on cable or peacock live and then cable or the network re-aired that would be my my guess chad who will be your fellow commentators both for biathlon and for cross country uh, same team for for cross country. Steve Schlanger, who called last Olympics with me, uh, will be will be the play by play, and Bill Dolman will be the play by play for biathlon. He's Bill has been doing this for the last four years, so very familiar voices. 
Now, Chad, you bring in a lot of knowledge of the athletes and a lot of knowledge on the history of the sport. But when you sit down at your commentator position, you're focused on that screen. What tools do you have around you? Do you have note cards and notes that you've made? How do you how do you come into that setting with all of the information that you need? Well, in biathlon, I have to say biathlon is, makes it really easy because their commentator information system that runs online is in real time and you can you can link to bio information very easily right from the website. So in that respect, I have that, but I still come in and I do a lot of notations on a start list. Um, I use colors. I, I like to categorize things in colors so that when I'm in a mid-sentence and I know what I want to find, I know where to find it, and I can back it up with an accurate statistic or accurate um, yeah, a- accurate tidbit. So I'll sit down with a, sh- a sheet or two that pretty much covers the entire start field, and I have notes for just about everybody, at least one note, so that if I do end up talking with somebody I don't expect to, I can say their age or their best performance. But all that stuff is already at my fingertips in real time on the IBU website. Um, I also set up, um, I also highlight over the course of the season, I print out the, the latest standings and I use highlighted markers and I have a lot, you know, I calculate the differences between the winners and the leaders and everybody chasing time. Um, I look at times back and in a pursuit competition, I highlight the start list in a way that makes it very easy for me to figure out how far back somebody's starting. So when I'm in mid-sentence and I see someone moving up, I see their bib number, I can go to the start list, I can find where they started uh, time back. So there's just things that sort of shorten the process of things that might break my concentration while I'm in mid-sentence talking. And, And that's just stuff that I've learned how to do over the course of doing this for two decades. Chad, you have the benefit of having a commentator information system in front of you for biathlon. The fans at home may not have that, but they do have the new uh, IBU mobile app, which has been a fantastic way to kind of as an additional screen when you're watching the live coverage on Peacock. It is. I I think that that's a really great tool. And and to be clear, you, you... the, the, the fan can still get on data center and, and watch what I'm watching. You just have to go to the bottom of the page and find the little data center link. Uh, I was a little worried they were going to take that away from me this year, but uh, they haven't. And, uh, you know, I honestly have a hard time believing they're going to improve upon it. But that is a very clunky mechanism for somebody who maybe isn't, um, isn't used to it. So I think the new app has been really a user-friendly, fan-based um, tool that is making it very easy for everybody to kind of follow biathlon just a little bit more, but maybe not as in-depth as I need to get. Chad, let's talk a little bit about Team USA. The U.S. biathlon team is now set for Beijing. We have some veterans on that team. We have some newcomers, as you would typically expect. Uh, what are your thoughts on this team? Uh, what's the vibe around them? Uh, you are in Antholtz right now. I don't know if you've been around the athletes at all, but when you look at these athletes who will represent the USA in Beijing, what are some of your thoughts and the opportunities that they have? Well, I think that... I was just talking with the NBC crew. I actually think that their best chance at doing something kind of special is in the first race, the mixed relay. I think that uh, you look at the, you look at putting the best two men, best two women together, and it might be several different people involved there, but that, that, that certainly looks like an opportunity for the United States. Um, I think that a top 10 finish will be good for anybody. I mean, Sean Doherty's best finish is a top 10. So anything better than that in Olympic Games is, is going to be great. Uh, you know, the, the high water mark, I believe, is, if I'm not mistaken, is ninth place. Uh, you, you can you can fact check that. Maybe it's eighth, but I think it's ninth. And, 
it would be nice to see that go down. And, and I think that, that that is an opportunity and a possibility for anybody on these on this team. I, on the women's side, I think Susan Dunkley is uh, kind of one of those athletes who, you know, think about think about Antolts two years ago. She was she was kind of having the same kind of year she's having now, and she let she grabs lightning in a bottle and takes the bronze medal in the sprint competition. Uh, not the race that you'd necessarily consider anybody t- making lightning in a bottle happen when they're struggling on, with their ski form, but she did it. And I look at like the, the high altitude, the fact that the United States knows how to prepare for high altitude. Um, I, I think that there are great possibilities for some exciting performances, but uh, you know, I don't think we, you know, I don't think we have the metal favorites or metal, metal favorites that we've had in the past three Olympic games. But I do think our, our forward momentum and progress right now, just looking at Sean, how he's skied and rupolding, looking at Paul and, and Jake on the men's side are, are at the best they've ever been. Uh, Claire is certainly capable and has experience. And Deidre Irwin has just put personal best after personal best together this year. So uh, I, I actually think that a, a team event like the mixed, like the mixed relay, that that that's the that's the big opportunity for Team USA, and then the rest of it is just trying to trying to set new personal bests and maybe team bests at the Olympics. Let's talk about some of those first timers, and you just mentioned a few of them. But what is the mindset when you know this is your first Olympics? You're coming in there, you're awestruck ab- about everything. Uh, but but how do you, how do you take that and distill it and and get ready for your competition? Because that's what you're there for. You're there to compete, but there's this aura around you. Yeah, boy, if I knew that, I would have been a lot better biathlete than I was. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think the best thing, the, the thing about the Olympics is, is that um, it's a bigger deal in the United States than, than it is. It's a big deal everywhere, but it's a bigger deal in the United States compared to the World Cup and World Championships uh, in any other country. You know, uh, so it, it has this big marquee moment stamped on it for Americans. And I think if, if, if I were coaching an American athlete going to the Olympics today, I would try to downplay the, that piece of it the most. And I think the fact that we're in a COVID era, the athletes aren't going back home, which is a bummer because they don't get to see their families. But I think in a lot of ways, they kind of avoid that hype, that local hype that would really have been kind of special to get when you've been named to the Olympic team. But it, you also don't have it before you go to the Olympics. So it maybe feels a little bit more normal. Like it's just another competition. I think that biathlon is the kind of sport that if you can take, uh, if you can make it as normal as possible on the days you really want to be good, the, the, that, those are the successful days. And that, that goes from the very top of the sport all the way through the field that, uh, you know, the same thing that you, Marta Olsby Roysland doesn't do her best when she's concentrating on the results. We'll put it that way. Yeah. Let's shift over to the international side of things. Uh, It's been an interesting season so far in the IBU World Cup Tour. As you look at the international field, look at the retirements that we've had since 2018, who do you see as some of the international favorites to do well in Beijing this this February? Well, I think that is a really interesting, that's an interesting topic because I feel like we've gotten into the last Two, two Olympics for sure, and definitely maybe even three Olympics, but two Olympics. I think about uh, Sochi and Pyeongchang, and you have Martin Fricard and Johannes Tignesbu and, and, the, and the kind of the end of the Oleander Bjørndalen period and, on the men's side. And and on the women's side, you had uh, Magdalene Neuner in 2010, and then Laura Dahlmeier emerged in 2014 and um, into 2018. And there's no real 
super duper star in either gender right now. And, and that's compelling. And um, when we've had these super duper stars who we thought were going to destroy everybody at the Olympics, they actually didn't do it uh, almost across the board. I mean, they, they got medals, but they didn't dominate. And I think that if you look at Tyrrell Ekoff from last season to this season, it shows you just how tough a sport biathlon is to remain at the top of the heap. And going into these Olympics, we can say all we want, but if you look at the venue, the the unknown of the venue, how cold it's probably going to be, how fair the skis are probably going to be, there's sand in the snow, it's probably going to be a windy range. That I think I I actually said in my NBC uh, biathlon call last night that I think that even though we have to pick pick our favorites and and be ready for it, it's almost it's terribly wide open compared to years past. Like I think there are a lot of people who are who can figure in it right now. The French aren't doing any special pre- preparation for Beijing and they're doing great. They're winning in the world cup and, and that's what they want to do. Canton Fiume has said, this is, this is how we're prepping for the Olympics. We're prepping by racing and being ready to race, but that's easier said than done when you're, when you were born in the high Alps of France, uh, when you're born at sea level from Norway, you might need to take a different approach to competing at a high level, high altitude uh, competition. So there's a lot of different roads going to Rome right now. Um, I think if I had to, if I had to just size it up in a, in a few sentences, I really think the French men are really in a good place. I think that the French women are also nearly equally good place. But the, um, the, the Belarusian women, the two women stars in biathlon for Belarus, Alin Bekova and Hanna Sola are really interesting. And this, But across the board, the Swedes, the Swedish women are so deep right now that I think if they don't come away with three or four medals, it's going to feel like a punch in the gut to them. So uh, watch for Swedish women and, you know, the French men and, and hopefully the Norwegian men. I, uh, now, Norway has been the lion's share of our focus for a long time in this sport. And I think the biggest story to date is that nobody feels great about Norway right now, including the Norwegian commentators. I talked to Ola Lunde and, and Andreas Brunsmith, Stabrun Smith, from uh, NRK in Norwegian, I saw them in polling, and they they don't feel great about Norway. I mean, I, I don't want to. I'm not putting words in their mouths when I say that either. But they they're not being critical, but they're they're concerned that Johannes Tingesbu hasn't found his form yet, and that Tyrell Ekhoff hasn't found her form either. And it's getting pretty late, so uh, it's going to be interesting to see what Norway does and whether they're the team that we we've come to come to expect, the dominant team. And, and I would say right now, I'm not expecting that. You know, I wanted to ask you about that, and you phrased it as finding your form. And let's look at Johannes Tignesbo from Norway. Has not found his form, came into the season as one of the favorites. Can you still pull that out? Is biathlon the type of sport where maybe you haven't been having the best season, but you can go there on that world stage and you can perform? Is that possible? Yeah, maybe. I mean, you think, you think, I mean, so I go back to Norway to me is, is an amazing sports Organize, they have amazing sports organizations. They have great support from the youth to the to the Olympic gold medals. And I, and I look at a performance like I can't remember his name, but the gentleman from Norway who won the triathlon at the Olympics this uh, last summer in Tokyo. You know, he he didn't look good as a runner. He didn't look like the guy who should be winning. But his performance was so dialed, and the Norwegians are so dialed with their physiology, with their their understanding of exercise physiology and training, and how athletes perform. But I can't help but think that they just overdid it this year. Like I think that most, a lot of the athletes just aren't the athletes we're used to seeing, and it might have been just trying to be a little too good 
for an Olympic season. And, and again, we'll find out. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's what that if, if, if you put my feet to the grindstone and, and, and put my feet to the fire and say, what is it? I would say, you know, they look like they've tried too hard. And I just think a lot of people, I think a lot of their athletes look tired. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Christian Blumenfeld was the Norwegian who won the triathlon. And let, let's shift over and talk about the venue. You mentioned it a little bit, and this is the case across literally all venues. No one has been there. No one's been to the alpine skiing venue, the ski jumps, the biathlon range. Uh, uh, how difficult is that for the athletes to come into a place they really know nothing about? How much of a factor is that in biathlon? It's a huge factor because, I mean, I think, you know, ice sports, of course, there's a lot of nuance that we don't understand about ice sports. And But but let's just use our, our country cousin cross country and think about, like, what are the factors of performance and how does ski preparation affect that? And in cross country skiing, it, it's huge. The ski performance is huge. And we're talking about, you know, trying to limit fluorocarbons in the future. And that, that, that's a real challenge. But I don't even think the fluorocarbons are going to be the issue. I think it's going to be trying to find something that doesn't have friction with the sand and the snow and friction with the ice cold snow and, and the abrasiveness of it. So um, so you take that wax factor and that applies to biathlon but uh, like it does to cross country. But cross country doesn't have that added element of the shooting range. And the shooting range um, isn't necessarily wide open. There's a big wall. I've seen pictures of it. There's a big wall on the point thirty side of the range. I think it's there to is there is there to block the wind, but the wind, but the venue in general just doesn't have any trees. And I think that if you add to the fact that fact that wind is such a big performance factor to success in biathlon that doesn't even figure into cross country skiing, you put those two things together, and it's 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 a bigger crapshoot than we're used to by by a fairly large margin. And I think that's why, you know. Picking your favorites right now, and it's hard. It's hard to it's hard to it's hard to figure out who's going to win because it's just too hard to tell with all these factors. Chad, a few coaches and technicians have been over there this fall. Have you heard any feedback about the consistency of the snow? I know that one of the f- the factors that you've mentioned is the potential of sand in the snow, but any particular feedback that you've heard from those who actually have been on the venue and seen the snow? Uh, most of the stuff I've heard is by social media. For example, Yoni Kekkonen, who used to be the coach for the United States, and is now the Finnish coach. He was over there, I think, at like the holiday break. I saw social media; they were testing skis for the Finns. But, but uh, you know, it just sounds like it just. So- the only thing that I that I that I can say definitively from what I've heard is that it's different. It's not like something that anybody that 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 the waxers that the that the athletes that the coaches have ever really seen before. So I think that that's that. It, while it's unnerving to them, I think it's also fascinating as, as a com, as a broadcaster because it, it has the potential for so much. Um, it has the potential for so much uh, drama. Yeah, there's a lot to. There's going to be a lot to talk about one way or the other with with these Olympics. Oh, absolutely, and, and I, I mean, I think that's I think that's what's great about about the about the venue itself i mean i'm i'm not i'm not looking at this venue as problematic from for, you know if i was a wax technician i would have an i'd be having ulcers right now but as a commentator i can just sit back and watch the whole thing unfold and just describe what i'm seeing for the viewer and i and, and i think it'll be fascinating i, I think that you know medals are going to be won and how they get won is really up in the air and that is compelling so it's good i think it's gonna be great and we just have to 
tell that story as commentators. And, and, and that's what we're trying to do. We're prepping and we're talking about what 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 should happen. And, and the great thing is when you talk about what should happen, if it doesn't happen, then you can maybe look at why it didn't and, and, and let the viewer in on that as well. Chad Salma, thanks so much for joining us on Heartbeat. It's been great to get some insights into your past as an athlete and a coach and 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 a, and a broadcaster, and also to uh, take a look ahead uh, to the Olympics coming up next month in Beijing. Let's uh, close it out now with our on-target uh, segment. And I want to ask you first, as we do with all of our guests, do you have a favorite biathlon venue? It doesn't have to be a World Cup venue. It can be anywhere in, in your career. A venue that really means something special to you. Yeah, Um I think, uh, well, I liked, I actually had my best race probably ever in Ridnow, which is not a World Cup site, but um, that was probably my my best result, probably my best race there. But I think I liked skiing mostly in Oostersund as far as like ski goes, skiing, like being in a place and going skiing, Oostersund has, has really nice trails. Uh, and, and as far as a... Uh, just a whiz-bang wild venue I'm sitting at it right now. Uh, Antolts is just an awesome place. Chad, you are of Finnish heritage. Uh, you have a, uh, a f- you're raising a family uh, in very much that uh, Finnish culture. During the early days of COVID, you actually moved with your family over to Finland. You wrote an amazing blog, a fourth generation, first world immigrant musings on culture, lifestyle, and sport from a Finnish American living in Finland. In that time that you spent with your family in Finland, what are some of the memories that you really took away from that period back in your ancestors' homeland? Yeah, I don't know that it's memories. I think when I think about our family's time there, I, it's it's a feel more than a memory. I think that it it felt very stable in a time when things could have very easily not felt stable for our family. And I think that's probably what I appreciate about our time in Finland more than anything. the the uh, the, the news was the news. The 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 day-to-day life was really um, enjoyable and a little bit slower than what we're used to. Things are far less sensational on TV. In fact, the Finns are pretty level-headed people as a society. And uh, it's not that it's perfect, but um, I think when I think about Finland, I miss a lot of just the the day-to-day stability, uh, the stable feeling of of society there. It's really a, a wonderful place. Where did you stay in Finland? Uh, in my wife's hometown in in Uvascula. We actually went to um, we have a uh, we had a uh, we bought a, a row house after renting a place downtown, a small flat downtown. So we had downtown living going, and then we moved to a, a row house just across from the ski trails of Laivori, which was um, which is one of the one of the best. Uh, one of the best ski areas in Finland. And uh, so I would go out the door in the morning and I'd ski 8K Classic and get and then do the rest of my day. And I, I definitely miss that. Beautiful. It is a, it is a, a, a wonderful life in, in Finland. I have never lived there, but I've spent enough time at events. Uh, I know the culture and it really is a great place to be. Last question, and this one tends to stump a lot of people, but uh, biathlon has been a big part of your life. If you look at that sport and think about it, can you describe it in just one word, just one word on what biathlon means to you, Chad? I would go with suspense. 
I love it. Suspense. We are going to see a lot of suspense as we head to Beijing. And uh, Chad, I appreciate you sharing some time today from your broadcast position in Antholtz, where you'll be calling the races uh, this weekend on NBC and Peacock. We look forward to hearing your calls from Beijing and appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts with all of our fans on Heartbeat. Thanks for having me, Tom. My pleasure. Chad is quite humble, but clearly a big part of the U.S. biathlon story. Make sure to tune in to NBC and Peacock during the games. And as Chad said in the podcast, keep watching the NBC website along with the U.S. biathlon social media channels to learn more about the broadcast schedule from Beijing. Our next episodes of Heartbeat will come to you direct from the venue in Jean Jacquau, northwest of Beijing. Stay tuned as U.S. biathlon team heads to the Olympics. We hope you're enjoying Heartbeat as we tell you stories of America's biathletes. You can help us by sharing the link to your social media channel and telling your friends to listen in. Remember, subscribe to Heartbeat to get every episode delivered direct to you. And leave a review if you can. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. Thanks for listening to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon Podcast.